This episode of The Politics of Everything originally aired on March 1, 2023. How do you get from the 60s in California and like cool 60s California to the 80s sucky California, right? How do you go from like cool stuff to Reagan, man? Like what happened? Silicon Valley likes to present itself as a fount of progress. In tech mythology, the personal computer and the internet ushered in a new era of openness and connectedness, of dot-com innovation and friendships rekindled on proto-social networking sites. But Silicon Valley's actual origin story is murkier and less idealistic. It begins in the town of Palo Alto, home to Stanford University, hub for the electronics industry and birthplace of countless startups. It spans horse breeding, the possible murder of one of Stanford's founders, one of America's worst presidents, and the Cold War boom in weapons. Above all, the story of Palo Alto shows the persistence of right-wing thought that runs through Silicon Valley's history. Today on the show, we're talking with author Malcolm Harris, whose new book, Palo Alto, tells the story of a town and the ideology it spread around the world. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Want a regular dose of The New Republic? Sign up for TNR newsletters, must-reads every day of the week. Get daily roundups of trending news and commentary from TNR.com. Discover the rogues and scoundrels of American politics with Deputy Editor Jason Lincolns. Keep tabs on the rumblings of Capitol Hill with Grace Seegers and Daniel Strauss. And find out what's got editor Michael Tomaski steamed up this week. With the New Republic's newsletters, you will always be in the know. Sign up today at tnr.com slash newsletters. That's tnr.com slash newsletters. Malcolm Harris's new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, is a deep dive into the culture and history of Palo Alto, from Leland Stanford's arrival there in the 19th century and the founding of Stanford University, through to PayPal and Facebook. One of Malcolm's central questions is how the ideology that took hold in this place snowballed and reshaped the world we all live in today. Malcolm, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We have an image of Palo Alto today, affluence and innovation. The average home there is valued over $3 million. What was it like growing up in Palo Alto in the 1990s? Well, I mean, there's no uniform experience, right? But for me, the way I experienced it was so much like the suburban lives that I saw on television. I had two siblings. I had a dad that went to work in the morning and came home at night. I had a mom who was involved in the PTA and would pick my sister up at school. Three-bedroom house, like standard Boy Meets World type reality. And so for me, it was this like protected bubble of American suburbia at a time when that model was like in crisis around the country. So Spielbergian practically, it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more or less. There's a story you tell in the book that feels like a little window into how the place imagined its own origins or its founding, where you describe kids at the school reenacting the California gold rush. Can you just take us to that moment? Yeah, this is really common in terms of California pedagogy Hmm. that you like in fourth and fifth grade in particular, 
it's like a statewide standard to do California history. And one of the ways you do California history is you do the gold rush and specifically reenact the gold rush where everyone plays settlers, right? Literally some teachers and stuff went by and like hid little gold pieces throughout the school and then released us onto the school to go run and find these gold pieces that had been put there for us. And then after we found all the gold, we were supposed to like develop an economy with each other and sell things to each other and set up a social metabolism. And it was like this reenactment of primordial American California capitalism, which was particularly notable for me because the year before you reenact being indigenous inhabitants of the land. So you're smashing uh, acorns into meal, experiencing what it was like to be indigenous in the area. And then the next year you go and be the settlers. And there's no overlap between these periods, right? right? You pretend (laughs) that you're settling uninhabited land. And the indigenous people from last year are all disappeared. They graduated. (laughs) Well, it's almost this like Hegelian order of races history. It's like in the beginning, in second and third grade, you're Indians. And then in fourth and fifth grade, you're cowboys and Mm -hmm. settlers. And that's how the history of man progresses, (laughs) which is racist in this very 19th century way. With the gold rush thing, it's funny because I feel like you're meant to be trained to experience just the excitement of making enormous amounts of money and then just making even more money by having that, which is, of course, what people were doing, like adults were doing in this area at that time. Yeah. And they use the same metaphor the whole time, right? So it was always the gold rush. It was the internet gold rush or the Mm. web gold rush, the Y2K gold rush. So in the book, you write that there were signs that if Palo Alto was normal, it was too normal, weirdly normal. Was there a moment you realized that something wasn't quite right? I do tell the story in the book about being a fourth grader and having the substitute teacher come to class and like very frantically try to communicate to this group of Palo Alto, like 10 year olds, that Palo Alto was a special place in the world and that the rest of the world wasn't like that and that we had to understand and try and see outside of our bubble, mm. which was a very like sci-fi experience for a 10-year-old to be told, <laughs> everyone's lying to you. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your world isn't the world. So that stuck with me, but I can't say it revealed the world to be something that it wasn't. Um, it was learning about what this country was, learning about America during the George W. Bush years. And it wasn't until later that I was able to really connect Palo Alto to these national, international trends. So let's talk about that a bit, because a big idea in the book is this idea of like the Palo Alto system, the ideology of the place. How would you describe that? Yeah. So the Palo Alto system starts as and really is this form of training horses because Palo Alto starts as a horse stock farm owned by Leland Stanford, who's the former governor, former head of the railroad, arch oligarch of California. And he starts training horses and he wants to improve the capitalist function of training trotting horses. And the problem with training trotting horses is it takes too much time. You have to feed these horses for so long till their children achieve success racing-wise, because then you can Mm -hmm. sell their genetic material, so to speak. And Leland Stanford said, we got to do this faster. We got to shorten the reproduction period of champion horses. And so what he and his head trainer, Charles Marvin, did is they developed this what they called the Palo Alto system, based on early childhood education ideas that were coming out of Germany. We know them now as kindergarten. Put kids in school earlier, start training kids earlier. And they said, well, we can, we can apply these ideas to horses. 
And they start running these horses as fast as they can, as young as they can. They're piling tons and tons of capital and resources into the production of these young, speedy colts. And they take the whole horse training world by storm. And this proves that if you apply ideas of science and technology and profit to millennia-old concepts such as the carriage horse, you can do something new, right? You can revolutionize these totally old systems as long as you are guided by science and profit. And that's the same idea that gets transferred into Stanford University and gets brought up over and over again by people in this place. So if you went around Stanford today, do you think people know that the sort of ideology of the place has its roots in basically horse kindergarten? No one's ever heard of like the Palo Alto system referring to these cults. At the same time, if you start describing like uh, its premises, right, if you're like, well, it's about scalability and being like fast to market and disrupting (laughs) existing systems, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know the Palo Alto system. Like, that's what we do here, you know? (laughs) So Stanford, he establishes his eponymous university. And then uh, he dies shortly after that. David Starr Jordan takes over. Can you give us the brief history of that and sort of what Stanford, the institution, was meant to be as these men designed it? Yeah, it's important to remember it as Leland Stanford Junior University. So it's named for... Leland and Jane Stanford's only son, mm. Leland Stanford Jr., who dies as a young teenager. He's this like incredibly promising young person who dies unexpectedly. And his parents take the fortune that they were prepared to invest in their child, and they say, literally, they say, the children of California will be our children. Leland Stanford Sr. dies, and Jane Lathrop Stanford takes over the university, and she wants to build a center of like philosophy and spiritualism, as mm-hmm. well as the biggest museum in the world. Doing this, she butts heads with David Starr Jordan, who's the first president of the university, who they brought in to lead it from Indiana, who's very like scientific man of the time, which means for him that he's very invested in eugenics. Eugenics is the mm-hmm. most important thing. And so they butt heads and Jane Lathrop Stanford is like ready to fire David Starr Jordan. She's assembling like all this evidence against him. She's writing letters about how he's going to be fired or whatever. And then Jane Lathrop Stanford is mysteriously poisoned. Mm, mm -hmm. She survives. She survives the mysterious poisoning, Mm -hmm. gets on a boat, goes to Hawaii, says like, I'm getting out of here. I'm scared for my life. In Hawaii, she is mysteriously poisoned a second time Mm -hmm. and dies. Okay. Uh, David Starr Jordan uh, very, very, very suspiciously says, I'm a doctor which she the doctor of ichthyology. And actually, <laughs> she definitely wasn't poisoned. Absolutely no poison. <laughs> not poisoned. Anyone who's saying that she was poisoned is a liar. And it's because it's Hawaii, they're probably savages. And there's like, you know, white retired doctors in Hawaii being like, what are you talking about? <laughs> She's obviously been poisoned to death. In fact, she like screams, I'm being poisoned to death while she dies. Right. David Starr Jordan, uh, instead of becoming fired, becomes the <laughs> president of Stanford University. So he's really like the one who gets to set up Stanford into what it becomes. What interests of his or like what lasting achievements of his do we still see in Stanford today? So he sets up this subject that he begins teaching with other teachers that he recruits from Indiana called bionomics. And bionomics is the study of organisms in controlled environments, but it has all these uh, eugenic precepts. 
And this idea of the order of organisms and the hierarchy of organisms and their improvement under controlled circumstances becomes the spiritual science of the school. One of the people that he recruits from Indiana is this guy, Louis Terman. He adapts an IQ test from France mm-hmm. into now what we know as the Stanford Binet IQ test right. and really starts IQ testing as a sort of scientific expression of this bionomics that definitely persists into the current day. The preoccupation with the optimization of all things is the dominant narrative of Stanford through the 20th century. After the break, we'll be back to talk about how the Palo Alto system has shaped the culture of Silicon Valley over generations up to the present. We're back with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto. One thing I want to talk about is what makes Stanford so important for understanding the wider world. Because you wouldn't have written this book about, like, Yale. It's not just, oh, it's an important university. It's at the center of an industry that's reshaped the whole world. Yeah, multiple industries. So one of the agendas of Stanford from the beginning was to train students in high-tech fields such that they could become inordinately prominent in inordinately important fields and redound that importance onto the university. So these Stanford men are going to go throughout the world and make Stanford important. And they're going to bring other Stanford guys with them and they're going to improve the reputation of Stanford all around the world. And this works right off the bat mm-hmm. with Herbert Hoover, who's part of the first class at Stanford University, trained in mining engineering and goes around the world spreading Stanford thought. It's funny because I feel like there are a lot of big villains in the book. Like every era of Palo Alto has a kind of really influential figure, whether it's Leland Stanford or Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover is not really remembered as a mining engineer. His legacy is being an incredibly bad president. And then also the Hoover Institute (laughs) at Stanford. Well, it's not at Stanford, right? It's near Stanford. It is. I mean, it's on Stanford. Officially part of Stanford University? Yeah, yeah. That's that's all nonsense. Uh, Like, (laughs) right? They use this, these institutional distinctions very clearly in order to separate themselves from political consequences. <laughs> but it's fully integrated into Stanford. So tell us about what is the Hoover Institute? Where does it come from? And what is it responsible for? Well, so from the beginning, when Hoover goes out in the world and starts making his fortune, he's acclaimed by David Starr Jordan as the highest paid, youngest engineer in the world. He's this like celebrity tech guy and transfers pretty quickly into like, instead of being in all these mines all around the world, he's sitting in an office in London, you know, trading mines, mining securities. Mm-hmm. And this whole time he's sending money, sending funds back to Stanford. And so he builds the new student center. He's building a bunch of stuff. And one of the things he builds becomes the Hoover War Library. And if you look at the original founding, whatever, that Hoover lays out the project. It's explicitly like to combat Marxism in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Is what this giant tower where all the scariest right-wing thinkers of the 20th century like hung out all the time (laughs) and continues to this day to give fellowships to freaky, freaky people. Milton Friedman, if we go back, Mm -hmm. or like Austrian economics, some of the like fringe ideologies of the later part of the 20th century come out of this institution that was built for precisely this reason to promote these ideas. 
Mm. So by this point in, in the history of Palo Alto, Stanford, you've got not only a strong emphasis on, you know, traditional industrial capitalism, eugenics, but now also this like very, very fierce anti-communism. And those are kind of the ingredients of the place up to that point. It becomes the anti-communist bastion. And then when World War II is over, you've got a place where they're figuring out the devices that America is going to need to use to maintain its position in the post-war environment when anti-colonialism is on the march. Mm -hmm. So the way I look at it is this question of the 20th century is the question of total equality. If the world is integrated into one big place and liberal ideas developed in the 19th century such that equality is on everyone's mind, how can you stop the march of equality of all peoples in the world? Because Palo Alto at that point has got a lot invested in stopping that march. It is a suburb built to secure the future for people who have inordinate power in Anglo-America. And what they come up with is missile Keynesianism, which is that we're going to make a bunch of money by building a bunch of bombs and dropping it on a lot of the world. Yeah, I feel like we think of Silicon Valley in terms of the birth of the microchip, but not so much as a place that was invested in building weapons. If you look at what a nuclear missile is made out of, you think of, oh, it's a big metal shell and it's probably made in like L.A. or somewhere. And then there's the like nuke stuff and that's made at a lab in Berkeley or L.A. But you don't think about the microchips, which are crucial. The first generation of silicon chips goes into the Minuteman 1 nuclear missile. And you don't think about the testing instruments, which are used to make the electronics and build the whole thing. So, so much of uh, these nuclear missiles, so much is coming directly out of Palo Alto. And Palo Alto, which has been looking for, for decades, solutions to this problem of the potential of equality of all people, right? That's what the eugenicists were trying to answer in advance. And so it's not a coincidence that these technologies come out of Palo Alto. Palo Alto has been trying to figure out How do we become so powerful that we can justify our position in the world or at least just defend it? Hmm. There's some irony in what your missile Keynesianism going hand in hand with Palo Alto and Stanford's anti-communism because it depended on huge amounts of federal money to keep the system going. Well, but I mean, you got to remember, Palo Alto's favorite son is Herbert Hoover. He becomes president, not just president of the United States, but commerce secretary for two terms before that. And as commerce secretary, he's rearranging so much of how the federal government works under the idea that what the federal government should really be about is bringing together economic stakeholders, the ownership class, to figure out things together in an Mm -hmm. associative model, sort of like (laughs) the ultimate cartel. He's running a giant federal bureaucracy and he's constantly bringing in new things into his remit, right? And he's bringing in like military spending into commerce and (laughs) industrial policy all centered around the military. And Vannevar Bush, who is known for coming up with like American industrial tech policy, is a Hoover. He wanted to found Raytheon at MIT, but he's a Hoover loyalist. And he's the one who sets up the federal funding for tech development. And so I think there's a danger to say, oh, they're anti-communist, they're anti-socialist, they're anti-FDR. Therefore, they don't want anything with the federal government. The federal government's job is to facilitate what they're doing. It's the governance of the milieu. It's the governance of the cartel, the governance of the cabal, the governance of the gang. And they called it 
the associative model is what historians call it, <laughs> referring to the Hoover administration. But we, again, we still see this. So when you see Donald Trump and Peter Thiel organizing a meeting with all the big tech heads, Jeff Bezos is sitting there and Sheryl Sandberg and Larry, whatever, and they're all sitting around a table. And then after that meeting, those tech companies start applying for prime DOD contracts for the first time. That's the associative model, right? That's Hooverism par excellence. And Trump in that meeting is like, whatever I can do to make to help your guys' industry, to make this tech thing go long, I'm going to do it. And that's for them. That's what governance is all about. One of the founding myths of the tech industry in Silicon Valley is a sort of countercultural one in which they are sort of hippies and rebels. And you're describing, you know, I guess the associative model. There are people who've worked hand in glove with the government, the military industrial complex, and people who've worked with the far right for years and years, comfortably so. Where does that sort of countercultural myth, what purpose does it serve? How does it get invented? And to what extent is it false or true? Yeah, it's, I think, the dominant narrative for how we understand this history, right? The transition from how do you get from the 60s in California and, like, cool 60s California to the 80s sucky California, right? <laughs> how do you go from, like, cool stuff to Reagan, man? Like, what happened? And some people tell this narrative as we did it all, right? The narrative of, like, the Grateful Dead's lyricist invented the internet. This is a popular story for people who are sort of tech utopians or tech positive people who are like, we were on the right side both times, right? <laughs> we were against all this like Vietnam, you know, oppressive government stuff. And then we came up with the internet and we saved America. And this has been, the, I think, like the, the dominant narrative of the internet's production. And you have the critical version of that also with the Californian ideology where they say like, yeah, these people both were bad. They were bad as, <laughs> hippies were bad. The hippies were bad and the, yeah. <laughs> and the eighties were bad. Like they did do that. We can blame, it was the hippies and they were like anti-government and individualists and that individualism created this neoliberal economy. I was prepared to write a version of that narrative. But the more and more I worked on it, the more I saw that as really just branding, that it has very little to do with what was going on in the world, and that the main thing that was going on in the world was the Cold War. And then these guys were trying to pretend like they weren't involved. Meanwhile, they were mostly very involved, often working for the American government, doing war work, not mm. just maybe doing drug research on behalf of the Defense Department, maybe <laughs> making ARPANET, whatever, but mostly building nuclear missiles. And the fact that like none of those nuclear missiles ever blew up the world means they get to tell this story about how they were hippies or whatever. Right. But you can't be a hippie and build nuclear missiles all day. <laughs> or you can. I, no, but right. If you are a hippie building nuclear missiles all day, then clearly your hippiness or your ideas about yourself or your ideas about the world are not what's important. It's the missiles that are important. <laughs> and if you read the Californian ideology, they say the new left was pro-technology, straight up. But then if you actually look at what the new left did, they tried to blow up every computer in the country. Like every <laughs> university in the country that had a computer center was under high alert because students, radical students on campus were trying to blow up the computer center. We almost never talk about the SBS actually bombing the Pentagon and taking down like airborne targeting over Vietnam for two weeks because <laughs> it doesn't fit with this sort of like the hippies invented the internet story because they weren't hippies. They were militant communists who are going around bombing all the computers they could because they understood that as the weakest point in the American war machine. 
There's two sides to this, though, that, that are weird, right? Because you have the people telling the kind of like internet and hippie story. But then the other part of it is that the right has never really come out and been like, oh, no, we actually invented it. And we're, we're pulling all the strings and we're doing all of this stuff, which is kind of the story your book is tracing. Like there's always been a very, very strong right wing foundation to Silicon Valley. And yet they haven't really been that eager to sort until recently, until recently where you have more openly right wing figures like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk in the public and particularly Elon Musk. They haven't really been that keen to be out there saying, hey, like we have right wing views and we're also in charge of all the tech companies. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things maybe I was a little surprised to see was how mixed the tech industry was on the 2000 election on Bush v. Gore. And that we think of that era of tech as very like liberal. Mm -hmm. It's really dominated by very young people, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if you look at who the there was, Bush had a whole ream of high profile tech industry supporters, especially at the high levels on some of these companies. And that their slogan was B2K, which I think is kind of funny because it's also the boy band. <laughs> Wait, what business 2000? What's the B stand for? Bush 2000. Oh, yeah. Bush 2000. Yeah. Right, right. Well, that's funny also because Gore was not just the person who was mocked for saying he took the initiative for creating the internet, but was in many respects the result of years and years and years of the Democrats courting the tech industry and very purposefully aligning themselves with big tech, beginning in the 80s and throughout the Clinton administration. And yet still... Yeah. Yeah. The Atari Democrats is what they yep. were called, mm -hmm. both because they came up on Atari and because they had taken more of a like free market approach toward economics. Part of the hippie story is that the kids of these hippies were the Atari Democrats. That's what Clinton Gore was right on the edge. But it's kind of this idea that tech is fun and liberals are the fun ones and the right isn't fun. And all these labels seem to stick to Democrats more than they stick to the right. No one is still talking about B2K, but people do remember the Atari Democrats. Which is funny because then when you look at after Bush won and how tech is feeling and what their commentary is, they are so excited. The most thing they're most excited about is John Ashcroft being named Attorney oh, General. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and so Alex, you know, anyone who is the Bush administration <laughs> era, right? John Ashcroft has a very, very, very specific meaning for us because he was uh, public enemy number one, right? He was like the villain for liberals and lefties. And you think for tech too, because he was so associated with the disintegration of privacy rights, which supposedly tech was supposed to hold right. sacred, as well as a sort of Christian conservatism that the tech milieu was supposed to be a threat to. It's like, yeah. we're the poly pagan rave people or whatever. We don't want the Christian dad being in charge. But they did. They loved John Ashcroft. And, and John Ashcroft loved tech too. Always pro-tech, always pro-internet. And the deal he came up with with tech was... I'll drop the Microsoft antitrust suit. Mm -hmm. I'll let you guys basically set up whatever sort of regulation by clicking an I accept button. Mm -hmm. That was a product of the Ashcroft years was the I accept terms and conditions <laughs> oh, no. button, as opposed to limiting like what internet the services could mm -hmm. do and how they would interact with their services. There's a look, if you get them to accept, then that's fine. And the deal was that then those internet providers would sell the government access to all this information that otherwise the government would be prevented from accessing because of privacy rights. 
And the government could just be another client for these private services. It's funny because reading your book, the current generation of prominent tech leaders, like people like Thiel and Musk, who are more openly right wing, make a lot more sense. Like they seem more like just one in a very long line of people with similar beliefs, and especially Peter Thiel, because he was actively involved in the ideological cultures of Stanford. The Stanford Review, I think he had fellowships at the Hoover Institute. They don't seem like a new kind of guy. <laughs> no, not at all. And yeah, so Thiel was Thiel's part of the board of overseers for the Hoover Institution, right? So he like picks up this job. But it's not just from Hoover to Thiel. You've got David Packard in the middle, who's I think one of who's understood as one of the founders of Silicon Valley. So he is the P in HP. He's the P in HP. You know, <laughs> David Packard, he's a six foot five Stanford football player, golden boy. The administration consciously supports him. He has to drag Hewlett along because they don't like Hewlett as much because he's like <laughs> not six five. But David Packard isn't just conservative, right? He isn't just a member of the Hoover Board of Overseers, which is huge. He doesn't just personally save the American Enterprise Institute, which becomes one of the most important conservative institutions of the past decades, which he personally rescues with his own fortune. He's also Deputy Secretary of Defense for Nixon during Vietnam. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he's part of the federal bureaucracy. And then Reagan, of course, becomes president, right? And he's very, very closely associated with the Hoover Institution and with the Stanford conservative milieu. They put his picture all, you know, in all their offices before he's president. President. He's their like great hope. <laughs> How important is tech really in the story? Because in some ways, it's a very traditional story of holding power in extremely traditional ways, like being in the government and then fostering ideology and perpetuating it through think tanks and sponsoring fellowships and papers to be written that support your views and the policies that you want. And Absolutely. that's all low tech stuff. <laughs> Well, when I started this project, or I think when most people think about Silicon Valley and they're like, what is the iconic product of Silicon Valley? Maybe they think the personal computer, maybe they think the silicon transistor. But when I look at the history and I think about what was the product of Palo Alto, it was the nuclear missile. It was a cocked gun put to the world's head that said, if America falls, we're going to blow the world's brains out. And that's what the project of Palo Alto's tech is. We think about the internet's early usage as like connecting people to be friends that they didn't know before. The internet's early usage was running Iran-Contra. It was running radio <laughs> systems out of the Panama Canal zone to organize massacres throughout Latin America in order to win the Cold War. It wasn't just looking up Monty Python lyrics on Gopher, <laughs> you know, there was more to it than that. Right. It was really like, you know, categorizing future murder victims. That's, that's what these <laughs> things were doing. And they spent a lot of time saying like, well, computers can be used for a lot of things. If we want to export them to Idi Amin or we want to export them to the Shah, then like <laughs> they're probably just using it for weather monitoring or whatever. All of, that, all of that stuff that we think of the internet, that's the branding, right? That's extremely successful that we think, oh yeah, like Friendster and MySpace and GrooveShark were these foundational internet companies. And actually that's just sort of like the side dressing. Yeah. And when you think about like the earliest laptops, what were the earliest laptops used for? Well, they were used for covert agents abroad plugging into encrypted networks so they could talk to Oliver North and run a shadow government policy with 15 dudes throughout the world with no oversight. Like, that's not easy. <laughs> that requires this new kind of communicative technology. And that's what the internet was. Wow. Well, 
That was a killer app, would you say, Malcolm? <laughs> it really was. It was the killer app. The Cold War was the killer app, right? <laughs> All right, Malcolm, thank you so much for talking to us today. The book is great, by the way. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Malcolm Harris's new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, is out now. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Lorraine Kadamatori assisted on this episode. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is rate and review the show. Every review helps. Thanks for listening. 